0: The next ayah tells us, ثُمَّ Your hearts have become hard. مِنْ ذَلِكَ Even after that, even after seeing a dead guy come back to life, you still didn't take Allah and His message seriously. كَالْحِجَارَةِ Then your hearts became like stone. Is this the first time stone is mentioned in the surah? No. You know Allah says, الْنَارَ الَّتِي وَقُودُهَا الْنَّاسُ وَالْحِجَارَةِ you and your stone hearts can burn too. Stones, the idols that burn there too. They became hard like stone. أو أشد Or even tougher in their stiffness. Heart becoming completely stiff. You know the heart is supposed to be soft. What that implies is, it's like the, the parable in Surah An-Nur is the heart is like a glass lamp. Light is supposed to be go, able to go in. If the heart becomes like a rock, what happens? No light goes in. And no light comes out. Someone bookman. Nothing goes in, nothing comes out. Your hearts became completely hard. Which means at that point, no matter what advice, what counsel, what you see with your own eyes. Remember Allah said, وَعَلَىٰ أَبْصَالِهِمْ غِشَوَةٌ Even on their eyes there's a veil. I mean, you saw a dead guy come back to life. If there's anything that lifts the veil from your eyes, it's that. This next ayah immediately starts with the hardening of hearts ثُمَّ غلوبكم, then your hearts became hard what's really amazing is the previous ayah said افلا تَعْقِلُونَ don't you then apply your intellect so the intellect is mentioned and the heart is mentioned there's an integral relationship between these two entities the, the, the mind and the heart and the Arabic language, the Arabic of the Quran helps us understand some intricacies of that relationship the word "aqal" in Arabic literally means to tie. "Aqala" to tie something. Like عقلت maratu sharaha" means a woman tied her hair. The woman tied her hair. "Aqal" is the rope that the Arabs put on top of their heads that they used to, you know, the, you know, seen Arabs that wear like the, the long scarves and they put the, the cute little rubber thing on top? Well, originally it wasn't a cute little rubber thing, it was a rope. And the rope was there because, not just because the scarf flies off, but because they would take it off, and that was their anti log brakes for their camel, okay they just tie their camel with that rope. It was a means of restraint. Apple is literally called a means it's the intellect is referred to as a means of restraint, a leash. Why? Because your emotions want you to do something, your temptations your your uh, you know sentiments want you to say something, but you hold yourself back when you use your intellect. What we learned from that also is. You know, when you're overly angry, you can't think clearly. When your emotions are high, you can't think clearly. When you're overly sad, overly angry, overly scared, whenever any of those emotions are running high, your mind shuts off. You're, you're not thinking straight. aql is a means of restraint. In other words, to the, so the Arabs, until you have your emotions under control, emotions to the Arabs are where, by the way? In the, in, the hind, in, the, in, the, in the mind or in the heart? In the heart. Until your heart is in check, you can't use your mind properly. The previous ayah said, why can't you understand? Why can't you use your mind? The, or don't you understand? The next ayah says, here's why you don't understand. Because your hearts are all gone. <laughs> your hearts have become. Then your hearts became hard. Hearts became hard because they saw a dead guy come back to life. If anything is supposed to melt your heart, that should be it. Even that didn't work. If that didn't bring you the guidance, then... There's nothing else that can be done for you. Your hearts became hard. ذلك, even after that. Then they became like stones. قسوة, or they became even tougher, worse in terms of their stiffness. Even out of stones, there are those that rip open, that, that burst open, and rivers come from them. Rivers burst out of them. You know, the the, the stones that are going to be talked about in this ayah isn't actually a conversation about stones, it's about people three kinds of stones will be mentioned and it's actually a parable of three kinds of hearts three kinds of hearts are compared with three kinds of stones in order to help you understand that you can easily understand that when you compare at least two different kinds of friends you have introverts and extroverts right you have friends that are very talkative and they always want to do stuff like play basketball, go bowling, whatever. Like They want to do stuff all the time. They can't sit still. They have to, If they're sitting still, they have to have a phone with a, with a bunch of games on them, and they can Angry Bird for four hours or something. But they can't sit still. They can't just sit and think. If you hand them a book, it's like giving them death, right? They just can't do that kind of stuff. And then on the other hand, you have other kinds of friends that are very quiet and intellectual and... You know, they're, they're, they're introverts and they're readers, they're thinkers, they're philosophical, you know, philosophically minded. They don't really talk much, they're not very social, right? Different kinds of people. The same thing happens with the Sahaba. They're different kinds of companions, right? There's different kinds of Sahaba. Some Sahaba are very extroverted, like Umar radiallahu anhu, Hamza radiallahu anhu. Even before some, they're very extroverted personalities. You know, Umar radiallahu anhu didn't come to Islam for six years. The question arises, well, what's he doing for six years? He wasn't hating Islam for six years. He just kind of never heard of it, because he was kind of busy. And then you wonder, what's he busy with? Well, beating up dudes, like hunting, horseback riding, you know, battles here and there. He's up to stuff. He's got stuff to do. Well, people like that, you don't exactly pull them over and say, you want to talk about the purpose of life on earth? It doesn't, really, doesn't exactly occur to them it's Like oh, I'll get back to you on that Let me just finish beating up that dude And then I'll, you know Then you have the Abu Bakr Siddiqs of the world Thinkers Almost philosophers really Really deep people, love poetry That should be a tell-all sign already Right? Arabs by the way captured their philosophy Inside their poetry So the deep thinkers were poets And he loved poetry He's a quiet person you know, for a, for a person who is uh, intellectual, they're a thinker. When the Qur'an is presented to them, they think about it immediately. And when they think about it, they come to their conclusions very quickly. If they have decency in them, the, the process is very quick. When a person is distracted in life, even if they're a good person, but they're distracted in life, they're in the middle of a lot of stuff you can't get their attention just by talking to them. Something has to happen that shakes them up that gets their attention. Otherwise, you can't get their attention. I'll give you an example I often give. You have two friends, the introvert, the quiet one, the intelligent, thinker type, and the hyperactive one. They both go to the convention with you. Imam Siraj Wahaj is speaking. Who wants to attend? The quiet type, or the extrovert? The extrovert. Mom Siraj is going to be awesome. I love how he talks. What's he going to talk about? Who cares? It's Mom siraj Bahaj. It's going to be amazing. Mom siraj mashallah, you know, he could do some really cool stuff. He could excite you about anything. He's just this, this power as an orator. He could excite you about anything. I was one time, I was in a lecture of Imam Siraj, and he said, when I was a child, I had a dog (laughs) (laughs) and somebody said fuck me (laughs) (laughs) he can excite you about anything and if both of your friends went to attend that lecture and they came back from that lecture and then your friend's like that was awesome it was so amazing I'm so going to pray five times now And the other friend says, I don't understand. I was trying to take notes. I know he had a dog, but what was the point he was trying to make? They don't get it. And then the next session is going to be like a, a hadith, the history of hadith compilation workshop, five hours long by a scholar who's visiting from Medina or is visiting from Syria. Who wants to go? The nerd. And this time he or she drags the other one with them it's gonna be amazing, I brought four color pens so I can take color-coordinated notes. You know? They sit there and they're taking, you. she's listening to like, you know, this was the first muhadith and they did this and they did that, these are the names, scholars and they turn to their friend in the middle, was that the 8th century or the 7th century? It's like leave me alone man, you brought, you brought me into this. It is death for them. Different kinds of people, different kinds of things appeal to them, right? Different kinds of people, things resonate with them. They're not. It's not that one's better than the other. It's just different people. Now, what happens is in this ayah, Allah talks about a rock that just bursts open, and rivers come out of it. It's like the heart of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. The potential iman, water in this ayah is faith. Water is iman itself. Faith itself. When the message is present, presented to him. The water was so much already inside, you basically barely have to tap it. And what happened? This Iman just came out. There's no time taken for him to accept Islam. With Omar, the next kind of heart, Omar is not the interpretation, it's a sample of the next kind of heart. There's other people that can have that kind of heart. Distracted by stuff. The only way you can really get their attention is to rattle them. How does Abu Bakr siddiq or Umar ibn khattab come to Islam? You know the story, right? It's a traumatic experience. He hit his sister. He sees blood drip down her lip, and then he's like shaken by that. And at that moment, he has the attention of the Qur'an. At that moment. Had the Qur'an been written or given to him at a time where he wasn't paying attention like that, it wouldn't have had an effect. You know? And there's other stories in the t- case of Umar. He was shaken before too. Literally shaken. He was hiding behind the ghilaf of the Kaaba, the cover of the Kaaba at night time. He was going to jump the Prophet and beat him up. The Prophet was praying. He started listening to the recitation. And he said, this is some amazing poetry. That's beautiful. And the Prophet was reciting, وَمَا هُوَ بِقَوْلِ شَاعِرٍ It's not the word of a poet. How little do you believe? He says, well, how, how do you know what I was thinking? He must be a mind reader. It's not the word of a mind reader. How does he know that? What is it? A revelation from the master of all nations. He ran away. He got shaken up. He didn't become Muslim. He ran away. He got scared. You know? He was just shaken by it. There are some people who will come to Islam from an intellectual journey. Some will come to Islam after a car accident, after surgery, after losing a child, after something traumatic. They're going to come to Islam after almost dying by disease. They're going to come to Islam because they lost a friend. Something happened, something that shook them up happened, you know. And these are, these are two different kinds of hearts. So the second kind of heart Allah says, وَإِنَّ مِنْهَا لَمَا مِنْهُ الْمَا out, out of the hearts there are ones that crack open and water comes out. It doesn't open on its own. It has to be hit and then it cracks open. Something has to shake it. And guess what? You'll still find water in there. When you look at it, you think There's, there can't be any water in that one. Not in a homework. He's going to be a Muslim? Come on. Seriously? That guy? Do you know what he does? He's gonna be Muslim, and then when it's when that heart is shaken, Iman comes out of there too. But then there's a third kind of heart. Even out of them, there are those that fall from the fear of Allah. They fall from the fear of Allah. Allah mentions rocks that are falling like a landslide. You know how the picture of a landslide, rocks are falling, but He doesn't mention any water this time. The first two kinds of hearts, there were water. One more water than the other. But the third one, there was no water. What Allah is talking about is Islam without Iman. Islam without Iman. Iman is represented by what in this example? Water. When there's no water mentioned, but it still has the fear of Allah, it's submitting. It's falling from the fear of Allah, like a man falling in sajda, from the fear of Allah. Like the rock falls from the fear of Allah but he may not have tasted Iman yet there is such a thing as having Islam without Iman having become Muslim coming to the faith without tasting the sweetness in your heart maybe your mind has submitted your, 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 your intellect has submitted to this mission or this, 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 uh, this belief but your heart hasn't tasted its sweetness yet and when the heart tastes its sweetness you'll shed tears it'll tell your mind doesn't make you cry, your heart does right? So Allah says, قَالَتِ الْعَرَابُ آمَنَّا قُلْ تُؤْمِنُوا وَلَكِنْ قلوا أَسْلَمْنَا Barwin say they have faith. Tell them, no, 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 you don't have faith, you've accepted Islam. وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلِ الْإِيمَانُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ Iman hasn't entered your hearts yet. This water hasn't entered your rocks yet. That's what that is. Interestingly, the ayah began, your hearts were so hard, they were even worse than rock. Then Allah talked about three kinds of rock. Three kinds of rock represent three kinds of hearts. Three kinds of hearts that have hope, that have potential. And why give this example? You know how hypocrites said, what does Allah mean by this as an example? Remember that? Why give the example of rocks? Because he's talking to Bani Israel. They actually take pride in the history where water came out of rocks. So give them an example relevant to their experience. That's what Allah does. He's talking to Bani Israel. What better example than water and rock? وَمَا اللَّهُ بِغَافِلٍ عَمَّا تَعْمَلُونَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَيْسَ غَافِلًا عَمَّا تَعْمَلُونَ أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ ثُمَّ قَسَتْ قُلُوبُكُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ ذَلِكَ فَهِيَكَ الْحِجَارَةِ أَوْ أَشَدُّ قَسْوَةً وَإِنَّ مِنَ الْحِجَارَةِ لَمَا يَتَفَجَّرُ مِنْهُ الْأَنْهَارُ we're up to ayah number 74 of Surah Al-Baqarah. Allah just talked about the incident of the calf, the, the cow that had to be slaughtered. And at the end of that, uh, what Allah mentions is, Strike some f- part of that flesh with the rest of the corpse. When you strike that part of the flesh, Allah will bring that corpse back to life and it'll point to the killer. So That's the summary of the story. But Allah Azza wa Jajman says, that is how Allah gives life back to the dead. And this is a very interesting statement to make because one of the lessons in that is it is by Allah's command that life is given after death. Now how, whatever that command may be, that command may be in the form of slaughtering a cow, it may be in the form of kun fayakun, it may be in the form of water coming from the sky and the dead earth coming back to life. But that is how Allah gives back, life back to death. In other words, He brings life in a way you cannot understand. So, كَذَلِكَ اللَّهُ الْمَوْتَى وَيُرِيكُمْ أَيَاتِهِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَعْقِلُونَ And He shows you His miraculous signs so that you may come to understand. ثُمَّ قَسَتْ قُلُوبُكُمْ مِنْ بعد Really interesting language. He says, first He says, He shows you your, the ayat so you can understand. Of, of course, understanding is something that's up here, it's an intellectual thing. Then immediately He says, ثُمَ then your hearts became hard. Uh, this afternoon I mentioned to those of you who were present, there are two faculties. There's our heart and there's our mind. First Allah questioned, why don't you think? Which is a faculty of the intellect. And immediately He said, there's a reason why you can't think straight. Because you, it's not that you have an intellectual problem, the real difficulty with you guys is you have a spiritual problem. Your hearts became hard. Here we learn something, I'll I'll, I'll simplify it as much as I possibly can. The relationship between our heart and our mind. Our minds, they process things, we calculate with our mind, we analyze with our mind, we understand things with our mind, we memorize, we learn, things like that, we do this with our minds. And our minds progressively develop. In other words, the, the mind of a child that's four, is less advanced, and when, it, when he becomes 6 or 7 or 8 or 10, it starts getting more and more advanced. And when that same person becomes 20, their mind has matured. And when they become 30 and 40, it's matured even more. So the mind is something that's constantly growing and maturing, and uh, learning more and more, acquiring more and more. However, the heart is a different kind of entity. The heart doesn't mature or grow, the heart fluctuates. Some days you'll have really good days as far as remembering Allah and being cautious of Allah. And other days will be really bad. You have up and down in the heart. And the heart can become hard and the heart can become soft. It can die, it can come back to life, etc. Right? So on the one hand you have this entity that matures. And on the other hand you have this entity that inside of us that is very volatile. It's very, you know, a fragile entity. Which is our hearts. We have to take care of this heart. So in, in other words, you know how sometimes the, the khatib will give a khutbah about something you've heard a thousand times? And the first thing that goes on in your head is, man, I already know this. I don't need to hear this again. I already know this. Well, you know it up here. Your mind understands it. But what still needs it? The, the, the heart still needs it. The heart needs the reminder. أَلَا بِذِكْرِ اللَّهِ تَطْمَئِنَّا الْقُلُوبِ فَذَكْرِ dhikra Reminder has benefit. Benefit for the hearts. Now, the thing is though, the question is as far as the, the Qur'an's picture of human psychology, when you and I make a decision, does that decision come from the mind or does it come from the heart? It's a very interesting philosophical question. Well, how do we make our decisions? And the, the, the answer to that is, is actually a combination of both, but the heart is in the driver's seat. The heart is actually in the driver's seat as far as the Qur'an's picture of this thing is concerned. So let me give you just a couple of quick examples of that. You can have, for example, a, a young boy, you know, a teenager, goes to high school. All of his friends smoke. I'll just leave it at smoke. What they smoke, we won't talk about, okay? So, so they, he smokes. Now he takes a... In, in high school, you're supposed to take a health class, Right? So he takes a health class, and in health class he learns that smoking is really bad for your health, it can cause this and this kind of cancer, these kinds of narcotics can have these impacts on the brain, and it can result in these kinds of disorders, etc., etc., etc. And he's a smart kid, so he gets an A in health class. In other words, when he takes the questionnaire that has a hundred questions about the harms of smoking, he answers all of them correctly. And when he goes to the store with his fake ID to buy a pack of stogies, On the side of the cigarettes, you know what it says? The Surgeon General gives you, asks you to have taqwa. And you know, because the smoking will lead to cancer, don't smoke. You know, He'll the Surgeon General will tell you on the pack of the cigarettes itself, right? But does he still smoke? He still smokes. If you ask him, do you understand the harms of smoking over here in your mind? Do you understand them? Have you come to understand completely even the science of the harm in smoking every single, every single puff? He'll say, yeah, I get it, I understand. Then you ask him, so why do you smoke? Well, we all do it together, I like it. Meaning he won't give you an intellectual answer. They might even say, I don't know. I don't know, I just like it. They might say something as casual as that. But let me give you that same kid's example. So he's at home in his room upstairs smoking. And he sees his, cars, his dad's car pull up into the driveway. What happens next? The cigarette goes into the toilet, flush, you know, air freshener, a couple of gum in the mouth. The surgeon general was not able to scare him of cancer. But the dad pulls his car up into the driveway, and all of a sudden that's enough for him to be convinced that smoking is bad for my health. How come? Because he has fear of his father where? In the heart. If you don't have fear in your heart, then even if you know it's bad for you, you'll still do it. You will do in the end what you want. Now, another example of this, one more like worldly example, then I'll give you a religious example. Another worldly example is you can have, you know, a young man or woman, or a young student in college that is, they love entertainment, they love movies, they love basketball, they love sports, they love these. They love entertaining themselves. But it's exam season, right? So it's time for exams. Now nobody enjoys taking exams. But in his heart, he is convinced that he wants to be a doctor, or he wants to get a 4.0 GPA, or he wants to make his parents proud. In his heart, he's absolutely convinced that's the goal he wants to achieve. For that goal, he will sacrifice his entertainment, he will stay up all night and study the textbook, and keep you know keep it wherever he goes with him, right? He'll do all of that, he'll sacrifice all of that, he'll apply the best of his mind, where? Where his heart wants him to apply it. So the heart decides, that's what I want to acquire, and then the mind submits, and the mind gives its best efforts to acquire that. In other words, the greatest scientist doesn't become the greatest scientist, just by thinking or studying hard, it's because they want to become a great scientist. And that want and that drive comes from the heart. That's a spiritual drive. Okay, now, Allah Azza wa Jalla mentions their hearts became hard. The, the religious example I wanted to give you. Allah has acknowledged in Surah Al-Baqarah and other places that the Israelites at the time of the Messenger wasallam were incredibly intelligent people. They're very, very smart people. They understand, they recognize. Later on in the latter half of this surah, we're gonna learn, when they see the messenger, they know him as well as them recognizing their own children. kama <laughs> yarifuna Even when they change the book, there's one thing to change the book, you didn't realize it's God's book, so I changed it, I'm sorry. I didn't think I could, I thought I could edit it because it's human speech. Allah says, No, ma They changed it even after they understood it. In other words, Allah is giving them credit that they actually understood. But what's the problem? There's no problem here. Actually, we even have hadith narrations where two, you know, the, the rabbi sent his son to meet the Messenger of Allah wasallam. go find out if he's the one being promised in our books. So he spends time with the Messenger and comes back and he says, so what did you find? He says, there's no doubt about it, that's the guy. That's the final Messenger. And they both swear, we swear till our death we will oppose him. <laughs> Right, Because their heart is not willing to accept a Gentile. A child of Ismail salam, is not willing to accept it. So Allah says, now at the end of all of this, you understood that He's Allah's Messenger. You understood Allah gives life back to, you know, after death. You understood that it can only be Allah who parts the water so you can cross. You understood that the water coming out of the boulder can only be from Allah. But that was all up here, it never entered where? In here. It never entered the heart. And so even after seeing all of that, these things were supposed to melt your heart. But even these things could not... I mean, a dead guy coming back to life, if you have kind of weak iman in Allah, and you see a dead guy coming back to life, by Allah's command in front of your eyes, you would say, you know what, astaghfirullah al I will take the rest, of these last three, four days of Ramadan more seriously. <laughs> right? You, your iman would get straight. But these guys, Allah says... Even after that, ذلك, Even after that your hearts became hard. Then he says, فَهِيَ كَالْحِجَارَةِ Then they became like stone. Now the thing with stone is a very interesting parable that Allah gives. We, won't, we don't have time to go into details about it now. We'll, we'll go into full detail after uh, inshallah ta'ala the taraweeh prayer tonight. But ثُمَّ قَصَتْ قُلُوبُكُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ ذَلِكْ I'll roughly translate for you and leave you the riddle so you can, inshallah ta'ala, we, can we can address the riddle in completion uh, uh, later on tonight. Your hearts became hard like a boulder, like stones. Aw ashaddu Or they became even tougher, and more intense in their stiffness than stone. So now Allah says two things. Your hearts are hard as stone, which is bad enough. But then he adds, No, you know what? They might even be worse than stones. And he doesn't stop there. He says, Wa inna min al minhu anhar. Even out of stones there are those from which water explodes out, gushes out, rivers gush out. You know like waterfalls coming out of rocks and boulders? Allah is giving the example of that, that even stones can compromise. But your hearts were even worse than stones. Then he gives a, so the first kind of stone he mentions is the one that explodes, and, and you know waterfalls and springs come out of them. The second kind of stone. He says, وَإِنَّ مِنْهَ لَمَا فَيَخْرُجُ مِنْهُ الْمَاءِ Even out of stones there are those who crack open. They're hit hard and they crack open in themselves, they break. And what is found from inside, what comes out of them is water. So the first example was springs coming out of a rock. The second is the rock cracks open and what do you find inside? You still find some water. The thing to ask is which example had more water? The springs coming out or the water being found inside the rock? The springs coming out, that's more water. Now he mentions less water. Then he gives a third example of rocks, three kinds of rocks. He says, وَإِنَّ مِنْهَا لَمَا مِنْ خَشْيَةِ اللَّهِ And even out of stones, there are those that descend, that collapse. You ever seen like an earthquake, and maybe in a video or something, a landslide? So the rocks that are at the top of the cliff start collapsing and falling down, right? And they're rolling their way down the hill. So he says, there are even out of stones that collapse and fall from the fear of Allah. min خَشْيَةِ how many kinds of rocks do we have in this ayah? Three kinds of rocks, right? We have the rocks that gush into springs, we have, we have the rocks that water comes out of, and the rocks that fall from, you know, from, fall because of the fear of Allah. The question though is, what's the point of mentioning these three kinds of rocks? What is the benefit? What does that have to do with the rest of this conversation? What What does Allah mean by these three rocks? Allah says in another place, He says, These are examples we give for people, nobody understands them except people who have knowledge. In other words, these examples that Allah gives, in this case it's the example of rocks, you know, uh, three different kinds of rocks, these examples are supposed to make us ponder and reflect and do research, make, you know, pursue knowledge, and until we do, you're not going to be able to understand them. You're not because it's not something you can just casually read and say, "Ah, I get it." Three kinds of rocks. That's cool. It doesn't work like that. It's something that requires pondering and reflection. So, Inshallah, wa Taala, this, I'm not going to tell you what those three rocks mean yet, but I will share with you what scholars have said, Inshallah, wa Taala, after Tarawih tonight, what Allah Azza wa Jalla means by these rocks and what that has to do with this conversation that is happening in regards to Bani Israel. And so, I'll conclude with the conclusion of the ayah: wa ma amma ta'malun." And Allah is not unaware at all in regards to what you're doing. In other words, He didn't say what you did do, what you continue to do. Allah is not unaware, not heedless at all. Barakallahu li wa lakum quran al-Hakim wa wa iya'kum bil-ayati wa zhikri al-Hakim As-salamu alaykum Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa salatu was salamu ala sayyidil anbiya'i wal musaleen Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man istanna bisunnatihi ila yawmiddin Thumma amma ba we're going to uh, continue our study or at least our brief analysis of the parable that Allah gave about three kinds of rocks and I'm going to start with giving you a somewhat of a strange example but I think it helps uh, get the point across some of you younger brothers in the audience just assume or even sisters that you have two very different kinds of friends you have a very intellectual friend they love to read a lot, they're uh, very philosophical, they like poetry, um, you know, they, they are they're not exactly very social, so even if you see them at the aid gathering or a party or something, they're sitting by the bookshelf trying to find something to read, you know, they're, they're very, you could even say nerdy, right, you have a friend like that. And on the other hand, you have another kind of friend. This friend of yours is always, they, they always want to do something fun, like, the, you, you know, they, they're constantly texting you, hey, what are you doing? Want to do something right now? Want to go bowling? Want to go get some pizza? You know, can we go somewhere? Can you you want to come over? Can I come over? <laughs> they're always busy. They're always trying to be hyperactive in things, right? They love to go bowling or like hiking or basketball, whatever it is. So you have this friend who's very intellectual, quiet, reader, nerdy type. And then you have the other who's very outgoing and you know, a completely different kind of personality. So bear with me, let me set the scene for you. Pretend that the three of you, the quiet type, you, and the hyperactive type, all three of you went to a convention together, an Islamic convention, right? And at the convention, of course, there are different kinds of speeches going on. So one of the speeches that is going on is, let's say being delivered by uh, the sheikh of uh, Hadith from a university, let's say from Azhar. The Shaykh al-Hadith is here, and he's gonna be giving a five-hour workshop on the science of hadith and Usul al-hadith, right? He's gonna be giving a very intellectual academic workshop on hadith study. Which of your friends really wants to go and attend for five hours? The hyperactive type or the intellectual quiet type? The, the intellectual quiet type says, man, we gotta go, I brought, you know, two notebooks and color-coded pens. I can't wait that to, for this seminar to begin, you know. And the quiet type really doesn't want to go. But you drag all three of them and they attend this, and they're, you know, whenever the sheikh mentions a date, or a scholar's name, or a place, they're t- this quiet type, the introvert is taking all these notes and they're writing things down. They're very deeply involved, they're enjoying every second of it. While the active type, what are they doing? Sitting in a five-hour class like that one. They, hopefully they have an iPhone, right? Because they're, they're playing something, or... you know, they're like passed out, or... you know, they, they can't sit still. So for, for that person to survive five hours sitting still, is miraculous. So at the end of the whole thing, you know, one of them is really happy. Oh my God, that was amazing. I wish it was ten hours. And the other one is so happy that it's over, <laughs> right? So they leave this session, and so the active type, the hyperactive type. He looks at the program of the convention and he finds out that there's an evening session with Imam Siraj Wahad. You know who, who that is? Right? So there's a session with Imam Siraj Wahaj. And if you know anything about a session, especially at a convention, if there's a session with Imam Siraj Wahad, you know it's gonna be explosive. So who, who really wants to go the quiet type or the active type? The active type. So he says, we have to go to this session. I survived five hours in this hadith workshop. Now we have to go to this Imam Siraj Wahaj session. And the intellectual type goes, what's the topic? What's he gonna talk about? Because if it's not an interesting, you know, is, is it a really relevant topic? And the other one goes, no, the topic is Imam Siraj Wahaj. Okay. I sat for five hours here, we're gonna go to this thing. Right? So they go to this thing and Imam Siraj, let me tell you something, I love him to death, I know him from before I could grow a beard. Right, he, from, from Brooklyn. I used to live in Queens, his, of course, his Masjid, of course, uh, Masjid taqwa in, in Brooklyn. So he used to go even in college, they used to go over to him and ask him to come over to our MSA all the time, right? The thing with Imam Siraj is, sometimes you will fe- if you're if you're trying to take notes in his speech, might as well save yourself some paper. Because you're not going to be able to take notes. It seems like he goes everywhere. But in the end, at the end of his speech, you'll come out a better Muslim somehow. (laughs) One time, this is a true story, one time he was given a speech, and in the middle of his speech, he got really, you know, he gets really fired up. So he said, when I was a child, I had a dog. And there was a kid in the back, he goes, takbir. (laughs) So... But the idea is, you know, he can really fire people up, you know. And he's got that very, you know, uh, charismatic, you know, speaker ability. So anyway, he gives one of those speeches and this this type, you know, type A personality, this, this like hyperactive type, listens to the speech like, that was awesome, I'm so gonna pray five times from now on. You know, they're so amazed by it. But the intellectual type comes out of that speech and says, I was trying to take notes, but... Uh, I couldn't write. I just, I know he had a dog, but other than that, I don't know. <laughs> you know, what was the point of that speech? And the the active type says, "You don't know what I'm talking about. You don't understand." They're two very different people, aren't they? And two very different kinds of things resonate with them, benefit them. Even on their drive back from the convention, because you know usually conventions are long road trips, right? So on their drive back, the quiet type is just sitting quietly in the back, staring out at the sky. And they say, you know, weird philosophical things like, have you, have you ever wondered about the stars? Subhanallah, what an amazing creation. And, the, quiet, and the, the active type who's playing like, you know, angry birds on his phone or something. He's like, no, I haven't wondered about that, bro. I'm just wondering where the McDonald's is, because it's like 50 miles already and we haven't stopped. They're on two different frequencies, completely different frequencies. Now, why am I telling you this? actually before I tell you the reason let me give you a, an example from the Sahaba what kind of personality do you think is Abu Bakr al-Siddiq quiet type, intellectual, poetic, philosophical, deep thinker doesn't speak when he doesn't have to you know he's very reserved to himself what kind of personality do you think Umar bin al-Khattab has even before Islam what's he busy with Either he's riding a horse, or he's going hunting, or he's beating up some dudes, he's doing stuff. He's a busy guy, you know, he's very hyperactive. Now, the thing is, the point I made was, these two different kinds of people need two very different kinds of messages. Different kinds of messages resonate with them. Now think about how Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, how he came to Islam. Was it some intellectual discussion that brought him to Islam? Was it a debate? Or he read a book? or Was it some kind of an intellectual journey that brings Umar bin al-Khattab to Islam? No. You know the story? He's very famous. He's so angry, he's about to go mess with the messenger himself, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he finds out his sister. Oh my God, his own sister accepted Islam. And he goes there, and he smacks her across the face. And when he sees blood pour down from her face, then his heart kind of... Shakes a little bit and then he considers Islam. In other words, it was an emotionally traumatic experience. Now, compare, compare that to Abu Bakr as Siddiq. Do you know how he came, back to, came to Islam? Was it some emotional experience for him? No. He heard the message in a split second, he was a Muslim. Now, this is the point I'm trying to make. There are people that are more, they are thinkers and they're very, you know, they're. they're they're always in their minds, they're busy in their minds. And they think about higher things in life. And then there are people who are so busy in the world, and they're always doing things, that they don't have time to sit back and wonder where the stars came from. Or what am I doing on this planet? What is the meaning of life? These are, these are not questions... A, a, a certain kind of person never asks these kinds of questions. They'll ask, you know, when's the next playoff game? You know, or you know, who's getting traded this year? They might ask those kinds of questions. But they won't ask the kinds of questions, you know, what about an afterlife? You know, what is justice? They don't they don't ask those kinds of things. They're not thinking at that philosophical level. So you have these two very different kinds of people. Now, Allah Azzawajal in this surah gave us three different kinds of rocks. You remember that? But the ayah did not begin talking about rocks. The ayah began talking about hearts. The three different kinds of rocks that Allah describes are not three kinds of rocks, what are they? Three kinds of hearts. There are three different kinds of hearts. You can even say in contemporary language, it's like three different kinds of personalities. Three levels of people. Now water, in the Qur'an, water is a symbol of purity. Water is even you know, equated or sometimes used as a parable for revelation itself. Revelation comes from the sky like water comes from the sky, right? And so the, this, this water is a means, it's something used all the time in the Qur'an to symbolize purity. Now this, in this example, water symbolizes iman itself, faith. The, the rock is the heart. And the water inside the rock is what? The, the, the iman inside the heart. Now Allah gives us three kinds of rocks. The first kind of rock was, وَإِنَّ مِنَ الْخِجَعَرَ لَمَا يَتَفَجْرُ مِنْهُ anhar Even out of rocks, there are those springs gush out of them. They burst out of them. You know what kind of heart this is? This is the heart of an Abu Bakr as siddiq anhu. You just have to tap it and what happens? The iman was so powerful, so potent inside, it couldn't even stay inside, it exploded out. يَتَفَجْرُ مِنْهُ anhar this is a person who's been thinking deeply about the purpose of life already. So when, as soon as he gets the answers, there's a no-brainer. This is what I was waiting for. They come to it right away. But is that the same as the personality of Umar bin al-Khattab anhu? No. For some people, and you might, not, you might even know them in your own personal life, there are people you know that were not very religious. But then they got in a car accident. Or the, somebody died in their family or something really traumatic, they got really, really sick close to death. Something happened to them, and ever since it happened to them, they turned to Allah. In other words, something cracked that rock open. That heart was a little tougher. It's not easy to open by means of just words. It takes something a lot stronger than words to open up that heart. But even in that tough heart, inside what was found, the second kind of heart, water was still there. It's not as easy as it bursting on its own. You have to put a, apply a little force and you have to crack it open. So Allah says, وَإِنَّ مِنْهَا لَمَا مِنْهُ الْمَاءِ Even out of hearts there are those who crack open and water comes out. This is the kind of heart that is Umar ibn al-Khattab anhu. Something has to crack that rock open and when it does open, what do you find inside? The iman was there. Now this is very important for us to understand. You know why? Sometimes we meet people, you want to give them da'wah, or you want to give them advice. Even in your own family, there's a cousin who doesn't want to hear it from you. You know, there's your brother, your sister, your your uncle, whoever. And they just don't want to hear it from you. And you feel like their heart is really hard. But you don't know, there may be water inside. It just takes the right kind of event to crack it open. You know what I'm saying? There are some people, you can't just talk to them and expect results. They take their time. How many years, you have to ask yourself, how many years before Hamza radiallahu anhu, how many years before Umar radiallahu anhu became Muslim? Do you know? Six years. Six years since the message began, you have to ask yourself, what are they doing for six years? You know, they're not enemies of Islam, which is interesting. Umar bin al-Khattab only became an advocate enemy of Islam right before he came to Islam. You know, when things reached a boiling point. So what's he doing the other five and a half years? He's hanging out. He's doing stuff. He's busy with life. But when the opportunity presents itself and he's rattled, it cracks open. Now I come back to the convention. The kind of person who's already eager to learn. They're already, they already want to hear a message. This is the kind of person that you don't have to rattle them to get the water out. But Imam Siraj Wahaj, you know what his job is by Allah's permission? to shake people up so it cracks open a little and some water comes out. You understand what I'm saying? Some people need that emotional jolt. They need that. And that will, that will benefit them. And eventually they might become intellectual and they might progress and advance. But in the beginning they need that jolt. So it's important to have these different kinds of da'is, different kinds of da'wah. Not any of them is irrelevant. But the thing is, ash shawkani said something really interesting about these ayat three kinds of rocks, right? I only explained how many kinds of rocks so far. Two. But there are three kinds of rocks. He says actually these three kinds of rocks is Allah describing ihsan, iman, and islam. The first kind of rock had the most water. Which is like ihsan, excellence in faith. The second kind of rock, at least it also had water, so it still has what? It still has iman. But then there's the third kind of rock. And here's what Allah says about the third kind of rock. He says, Even out of them there are those who fall or collapse from the fear of Allah. In other words, when Allah mentioned the third kind of rock, he did not mention water. There's no mention of water. The first two examples, there was mention of water. But the third example, there's no mention of. Water. Now let's think about this a little carefully. I ask you to pay attention to this part so you can understand this example. Beautiful parable Allah gave. In ihsan, between ihsan and iman and islam, there is one fundamental difference. You know what the difference is? It is possible for you to have islam without having iman. How do I know that? قَدْ أَصْبَتَ اللَّهُ إِسْلَامًا بِغَيْرِ إِمَانًا بِقَوْلِهِ تَعَالَىٰ قَالَتِ الْأَعْرَابُ آمَنَّا in Surah al Allah says, He says, these Bedouins, they say, we have faith, we have Iman. Let me put it to you in the terms of this parable. We have water in our rocks. That's what the Bedouins are saying. We have the water. Because water means what? Iman. They, they say they have water. Allah tells them, no, you don't have water. You don't have Iman. Just say that you have Islam and Iman has not entered your hearts yet. It is like saying that water has not penetrated your rocks yet. So there is a third kind of rock that can be good even though there is no water yet. You understand? So Allah mentions Ihsan, He mentions Iman and now He mentions Islam. And even the Muslim will have some fear of Allah even though they haven't tasted the sweetness of Iman. They will still obey Allah. Like Allah says, shay'a." Even for the Muslim who hasn't tasted the sweetness of Iman, Allah says, even if you obey Allah and the Messenger, none of your deeds will be cancelled away. It still counts. You're still hopeful to be... You're, you're, you're doing, still doing it out of fear of Allah. And then He says, The last comment I want to make about this amazing example. Allah is not unaware of what you're doing. Right? When a heart becomes hard. When a heart becomes hard, one of the first diseases of that heart is that it's ghafil. You know what ghafla is? Carelessness, heedlessness. You are unaware, oblivious, oblivious. You know, let me give you a worldly example of ghafil. If you're standing in the middle of the highway and a car buzzes by you and you didn't even realize that it almost crushed you, you're still like in your own little world, drunk out of your mind, you're ghafil. You don't know what's going on around you, this would be ghafil. An example of, uh, the, the easiest example of ghafil in the animal world is cattle. You know why? Because cattle, you know they have cow tipping, I don't know if they really do it or not, but the idea that you can get so close to an animal... Without it even realizing, cattle is an easy target. They have dulled reflexes. You could be driving by on the highway at 75 miles an hour, and next to you is farmland, and two feet away from you there's a cow, right? And it won't even move. The, the fur on its skin is gonna go, right? And it won't even look up, it's still, it's still chewing on its thing. But if there's a cat there, or there's a bird there, what's the bird gonna do? Immediately, it's gonna fly off. A cat might go in and hide somewhere, a deer might run into you. But the idea is there will be some reaction, right? But the cattle has no reaction. You know what's amazing about the reason I share this with you? Allah Azza wa Jal talked about the people who are heedless. You know what He said? <laughs> he says, Those people are like cattle. He didn't compare them to any other animal. Which animal specifically? Cattle. And then he says, أُولَٰئِكَ humul الْغَافِلُونَ Those are the ones that are heedless. Comparing the heedless to cattle, because you know, let me give you a human example now. Now we have an animal example of heedless. Let me give you a human example of heedless. You ever seen somebody play Grand Theft Auto? Or like, uh, some of you don't even know what that is, alhamdulillah, you don't know what that is. Right? So, <laughs> or, or seen somebody play like Assassin's Creed, or, you know, Modern Warfare 2. Is that the one, new one? Right? And you're just, you, you, you're, you're in Qiyam al-Layl the whole night trying to, you know, coordinate with your team and take down the other team. And you, you see these kids sitting behind a screen, thumbs twiddling like this, and they're eating like cattle. The sun goes up, the sun comes down, empires rise and fall, right? Regimes change in the world, floods come and go, earthquakes come and go. And this kid's, his, his world, you know, like cattle or worse? Right? Even cattle has some benefit in the end. This is a waste of humanity. <laughs> right? So Allah says, now the reason I brought this up, Allah says at the end, When you are heedless about yourself, necessarily you will be heedless that Allah is watching. If you don't even care anybody else is watching, you definitely don't care Allah is watching. So when a heart becomes hard, it ceases to realize that Allah is not unaware. You can be unaware all you want, that doesn't mean you're out of trouble. My teacher used to give the example of an ostrich. When an ostrich is in trouble, you know what it does? It sticks its head in the ground. If I don't see the problem, maybe it won't hurt me. Right? Just because you don't realize there's a problem, don't think Allah is unaware. Allah is still watching. Allah still knows what you're doing. But, so here's my last bit about this example. You know, the purpose of giving an example is to educate. Even in modern education, why do you give an example? To help the student understand something. Whether you're studying physics or mathematics or medicine or history, whatever it may be, if there's a concept that you're not understanding, the teacher will help you by giving you examples. Even in textbooks, they'll have the lesson, and right after the lesson is done, they will do examples. Right, they'll give you examples. The purpose of an example is to help you understand a lesson. And there are conditions for what makes a good example. Not, you know, sometimes, and and, uh, I'm saying this jokingly, so don't get too serious about it. But sometimes we have, you know, uh, khatibs, speakers, who give horrible examples. Like if the purpose of the example was to help you understand, well, this is reverse engineering. Because the example made things more complicated (laughs) than things were supposed to be. And where I come from originally, you know, in, in, in New York, we used to have something called Uncle Khutbas. And there were these different great uncles, they're really nice people, very religious, but they're, very, they're professional ex- experts in their own field, right? So when the accountant uncle gives the khutbah, his examples are, iman is like accounting. <laughs> and the day of judgment is like you know, tax season. And you know, the good deeds are like credit, and the bad deeds are like debit, and the day of judgment is the auditing, and you know... <laughs> So you learn a lot about accounting in that khutbah. <laughs> so the engineer uncle is going to come and give a khutbah, and he's going to talk about how iman goes up like the piston and the pressure and the engine, and you're like, what just happened here? <laughs> right? But the point I'm trying to make is, a good example is something that the audience can relate to. The example is it's not something you, the speaker, should be able to relate to. The example is more in consideration of your audience. Now I ask you this, who's the audience in this surah right now? The primary audience, you remember? Ya Bani Israel. Now keep this in mind. Allah is giving them first and foremost, and even in the ayah Allah is speaking to them. Qasad, qasad your, your hearts became hard. Allah chose to give them an example of hearts, comparing hearts to what? Rocks and then talking about water coming out of rocks. You know why? Because these people understand the concept of water coming out of rocks. These people have that as part of their history. Can't they visualize that easily? Isn't this something they take pride in? Twelve springs coming out of rock? So Allah gives the example to the audience that is most relevant to that audience. Subhanallah. But this is, this is, you know, a, a high or relevant, good strategic education at its best. Now Allah is done talking to them. Don't
1: think Allah is unaware of what you're doing. Now He's talking to the Muslims. And He says something really amazing. He says, أَفَتَطْمَعُونَ أَن يُؤْمِنُوا لَكُمْ Are you really hopeful that they will accept what you're saying? He turns to the Muslims of Medina, and He tells them about the Bani Israel. He says, you really think they're gonna accept what you're saying? These people have seen dead come back to life and it didn't budge. they didn't budge. These people have been killed themselves by Allah and brought back to life. فَأَخَذَتْكُمُ الصائقة ثُمَّ بَعَثْنَاكُمْ بعد مَوْتِكُمْ the, the, the explosion seized you and I brought you back to life. Not just somebody else, I brought you back to life. You still didn't change. The, the clouds have followed them. and Salwa has been given to them. They still didn't accept their own messenger. You think they're gonna accept what you're saying? Allah is giving... The Muslims of Medina are a reality check. And you know why this reality check is important? The Muslims had this idea in their head, the Sahaba. They said, we were in Makkah, we were dealing with mushrikun, the mushrikun have no book, they have no history with prophets, they don't know anything but shirk, so they're ignorant. But these people of the book, we call them people of the book because they got books. They, had, they know what it means to have a messenger, to have revelation. They know about Jibreel salam. They know about the Day of Judgment. They know about these things. So they will be an easier audience. This will be an easier sale than the sale to the mushrikun of Makkah because those people were completely ignorant. So the Muslims were hoping that because these people are knowledgeable, they're gonna be an easy transition into Islam. And Allah gives them a reality check. <laughs> You really think they're going to accept what you're saying? وَقَدْ وَقَدْ now listen to this. These people will listen to you? A group among them actually heard the speech of Allah Himself. Musa salam took a, le- a group of leaders from Bani Israel to hear the words of Allah directly. They heard the words of Allah Himself. Then they changed it even after they understood it. They're not going to accept what you're saying, because before you, a much more powerful speaker than you, Allah has already spoken to them directly, and they even changed that. Wahum And they very well know what they did. They know already. So don't be, don't be simplistic in thinking that they're ready, ready and willing to accept what you have to say. Allah turns to the sahaba. He says to the sahaba, you really think they're going to accept what you're saying? You know the sahaba were hopeful. The Quraysh had no experience with a book, with a prophet, with revelation. They had lost the legacy of Ibrahim a long time ago. So when they heard angel, revelation, prophet, they're like, this is all new stuff to them. When the Prophet, when the Sahaba moved to Medea, they're like, these guys, people of the book, they know Isa, hey, they know Isa too, they know Musa too. They know Nuh, they know Adam. They know all of these previous revelations. This is gonna be so much easier. Because they they know this stuff. Mushrikun were so hard because they didn't know any of this stuff. Right? That's what the sahaba thought. Wishful thinking, you know. There's going to be an easier sale to make. They're going to understand this message because they're already halfway in. And they're waiting for their final messenger. What better sale can there be? What better, what easier pitch can there be than Islam to these Jews? So Allah gives the Muslims a reality check. After this track record of Bani Israel, well, they've known the truth before, let me tell you. And it hasn't exactly worked out that way. So after at the end of all this, he says, أَفَتَطْبَعُونَا نَيُؤْمِنُوا لَكُمْ are you really actually hopeful, realistically hopeful that they're going to accept what you're going to say? That there was already a group among them that used to listen to the speech of Allah directly. Then they alter it, and they, they did and continue to alter it even after they understood it. If Allah says they, underst- they altered it without realizing what they're doing, that's one thing you're copying a transcript of the Torah and you make a mistake, that's something else. They changed it after understanding it. Knowing what they're doing. So understanding isn't their problem. The problem is in the previous ayah, understanding was there, what was missing? The hearts had become hard. There's no fear of Allah left. There's no fear of consequences left. Our hearts are strange creatures. This thing that Allah made. If, it, if it's guided, you know the Prophet told us, right? When the heart is good, everything is good. You know what else that means? You guys are, for example, the ones that are in this program, in the full-time, the, the Arabic program. You have to exhaust your brain learning Muqtada and Khabar, and Madi and Mudare, and أَمَر and Mansub and مَجْزُوم and مَرْفُوُع and Mansub and مجرور. and You have to, like, fry brain cells to learn this stuff. But you know why you're here? Not because of your mind. Your heart says, I love Qur'an. I want to be here. I want to learn this language. the best of your mind is exhausted where your heart puts puts it the heart is the driver the smartest med student smartest med student is exhausting his mind, why though? his heart says one day my dad will be proud one day I'll be done with this one day you know, hopefully one day I'll save lives not one day I'll be the president of the masjid right, because I'm a doctor Called lazim and Malzum They have to be one or the other. You have to have one with the other. Right? You know, those of you that are physicians, try to avoid the boards of masajid. Just as a challenge to yourself. See if you can do it. They'll suck you right in. And donate to masjids you're not a part of. See how that works out for you. Anyway, as a side note. So, (laughs) they alter it even after having understood it, and they well know. Now Allah Azza says, "Wa Amanu amanna." This is the last ayah we we'll share for the evening. Wa amanu amanna. When they meet those who believe, they would meet them and they would say, "We have iman too. We have faith." Wa And when they would go among each other in their private meetings, when they would come back, to see what would happen is the Messenger would talk about Musa a.s. and one of the members of Bani Israel would come and say, "Hey, yeah, we know about Musa." And Oh, our book says that too. That's awesome. So you guys have exactly what we have. And they start agreeing with him in a, in a naive fashion. Then they go happily back to their own leadership. And they say, you know, I met a Muslim today and he was telling me all the things we've been learning too. I think they're on to something. So when they meet with each other, then the, the, the elders, the knowledgeable ones, what do they say to these naive people who were kind of tagging along? are you telling them things that Allah will expose on you so He will make a case against you on judgment day? This is what they're telling them. Look, don't tell them that you have these things in your book. Because if you tell them, Allah will say on judgment day, hey, look, you already accepted. So keep your mouth shut so Allah doesn't make a case against you. <laughs> <laughs> then this last part is Allah asking them, what is going on in your head? الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء على اله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته الى يوم الدين ثم أما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم واذا لقن الذين امنوا قالوا امننا واذا خلى بعضهم الى بعض قالوا اتحدثونهم بما فتح الله عليكم ليحاجوكم به عند ربكم افلا تعقلون رب اشرح صدري ويسر امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي والحمد لله والسلام على رسول الله ثم أما بعد السلام عليكم uh, just a correction on what I was translating, and I went a little quickly uh, on Ayah number uh, 76. Wa amanu qalu amanna. When they meet those who believe, they would say that we believe as well. Wa ila And when they are in solitude, one group with the other, qalu alaikum. Are you telling them? Are you giving them news of what Allah has opened up for you? Or upon you. In other words, the things that are clear to you about your religion, are you exposing those things to the Muslims? So that they, meaning the Muslims, can make a case using what you told them against you with your Lord. Meaning, when on the day of judgment you say that you didn't believe, the Muslims can make a case against you. Say, we used to talk and you used to tell us these things are in your book too. So you did expose yourselves before. Don't so the, the the leaders of the Israelites are telling their followers, don't tell them what you know. Don't tell them parts of the religion you already understand, don't share this information with Muslims. why don't you get it? Why don't you then don't you understand? Next ayah. Don't they know Allah already knows what they're hiding and what they're announcing? Don't they already know that? You know why now, by the way, do they know Allah knows everything? Yes. They know this. This is a very basic, there's not a scholarly thing to know Allah knows everything. But why are they oblivious to that? The knowledge of Allah. What did Allah mention to ayat before? What was their problem? Ghafla. When you become this ghafil, this heedless, then even the most basics that will lead you to iman and fearing Allah will disappear from your heart. Even though you may have volumes of books memorized. كَمَثَلِ الْحِمَارِ Like donkeys carrying low volumes of books, Right? That can happen. Now, this, is my, my, this was the last I wanted to share with you, and now inshallah ta'ala what I want to share with you is a warning. Bani Israel, I said this before as well, but I'll repeat, this is worth repeating. These ayat are not just for us to look down on the Israelites and say, ah, those kuffar, what losers. You know. These ayat are there, Allah gave us these ayat, because at the conclusion of these ayat, we're being told, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ ummatan wasatan." We're being made the ummah. Here are the failures of the previous people who held this position. Congratulations, your day one on the job. What is the point of telling you the failures of the previous employee? So you don't make those mistakes. So you don't become those people. You don't, you don't embody those characteristics. You have among the Muslims, those who will refuse to learn about Islam. Or refuse to open their mouth because they'll say, if I say it, I'll be responsible. I'd rather remain blissfully ignorant, right? This blissful ignorance is what they were talking about. Remain blissfully ignorant. Don't, don't open your mouth about anything that Allah will make a case against you on. Don't just keep your mouth shut. The lesser you know the better, the lesser you expose the better. Muslims have taken up this position. And then on top of this, I tell you in our context it's scary, but we have to think about these things in this term. in these terms. The world around us is asking questions of Islam. They're asking questions of, you know, about jihad fi or the concept of taqiyah or wala and bara'. And they're asking questions about the hadith or they're asking questions about why your messenger goes into battles or what's with this polygamy or these inheritance laws that are so unfair towards women. And they're asking us all these questions, right? If we keep our mouth shut and we don't clarify the answers while fearing none but Allah, if we don't answer these questions honestly, with integrity, while fearing Allah, then we are no different than the nation who came before us who didn't use to answer, didn't say what they had. They were holding on to the treasure Allah gave them, but they held it, they didn't share it. They didn't share it. Allah gave us this treasure so it could be shared. And the fact that people are asking us these questions, even if they're asking us with the most malicious intent. The non-Muslims a lot of times they ask us these questions, not because they want to learn, but because they want to humiliate Islam. that's their agenda. But even if they ask for the most malicious intent, our job is to still respond with integrity. We have to respond with integrity. And if our Ummah doesn't respond with integrity, then we are no different than the nation that came before us. We're no different than them. You know? These these traits that Allah is giving us of their characteristics, may Allah Azza wa Jal protect us and especially the knowledgeable among us to not fall into these things. Their cowardice. They were cowardly. Their knowledgeable were cowardly. They were they were they were afraid of accepting the truth that was in front of them you know and if that happens to our knowledgeable people if our scholars our, know, our people of knowledge our leaders they are afraid to speak the truth they're afraid to stand up for what is what, what will benefit people you know if they start compromising this deen for the sake of i don't know this is a mas- maslaha and not clarifying allah's book you know if we start doing that then we are no different from these people where this this warning has gone to waste you know I, you know, in, in this regard, us not, you know, not being fully honest in what Allah Azza has revealed. A lot of times people say that you know, we shouldn't talk about certain ayat of the Qur'an. Because these are politically sensitive times. Right? So we should be cautious when we speak about certain things. Let me tell you something. Everything that Allah has said in His book, everything, nothing is controversial. The only thing that's... The, the problem is our understanding. That's the only problem. If we were honest to this book, wallahi, nobody would look at the interpretation of this book and say, this is barbaric, or this is inhumane, or these are terrorists, look at their book. Nope, they wouldn't, they, the la- that's the last thing they would say. The only reason they say these things is, we haven't explained our book to them. That's the only reason they say these things. We should have confidence in our book. Allah didn't give us something that's hard to explain. Allah gave us something that appeals to the human intellect. Allah gave us something that is beneficial to all of humanity. So when we explain it with integrity, then all, the, all what you think is a controversy is removed. It's, it's, it's relieved. Then you will realize how Allah has given us the key to, to real civilization. Not just for us, but all, for all of humanity. This is what Allah has given us. So we, should, we, we need to stop being you know, um, cowardly about what our book says. We need to engage it with, 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 with full honesty. And this is a very, very difficult thing to do in our times. I know it's difficult. But it's something we have to do. And it's something, inshallah ta'ala, if we get an opportunity, I don't think it's gonna happen in Ramadan. But if, we, if you go through all of Surah Al-Baqarah, you just have no option but to expose Allah's book. You, I mean, you can't have an ounce of iman left inside you and be, have the courage, the audacity to not speak about Allah's book. I've actually given khutbah one time about Surah Al-Ahzab. And Surah Al-Ahzab is supposed to be one of the controversial surahs, right? So I gave khutbah and somebody came up to me, brother, use wisdom. Don't talk about those ayat. Let me ask you, can you take a highlighter for me and just tell me which ayat are wisdom and which are not so i be careful next time? Right? All of the Qur'an is hakim the Qur'an full of wisdom. The, our job is to clarify. And I tell you, Wallahi, today in our times, the clarification of the Qur'an is even more important for the Muslims than it is for the non-Muslims. We are not clear on the Qur'an. We're not sure what it says. We don't understand it. We don't spend the time on it. We don't, we don't seek the answers. And when we do get an answer that is not satisfactory, we don't question it. We say, no, we need to probe more, we need to research more. That's not enough. We need to dig deeper. We don't, we don't have that attitude. If we don't have that attitude towards our book, if we're not gonna you know, study our book and present its clear understanding and interpretation, then how can you blame non-Muslims for interpreting it for us? They're gonna do what they're gonna do. You know? And they're only, they only have that, that window of opportunity because we didn't take the opportunity. How many people would show up if we went to every public library in America and we said the Quran explained a free class? You know how many people will show up? I want to know what this Quran says. You know, it's talking about burning people and killing people and all kinds of things, right? They'll show up and let them ask their questions. This is great. That's what we're we were sent to do. So may Allah aj make us of those who are able to clarify His book and not be under Allah's curse, because those who hide Allah's book. أُولَٰئِكَ wa Those are the people Allah curses, and Allah created angels specifically for the only purpose of cursing people that hide Allah's book. اللَّاعِنُونَ He calls them. <laughs> That's their only job is to curse people who hide Allah's book. Not explaining this book is the same as hiding this book is the same as it. So all of us better become, in whatever capacity, students of this book and, and clarify its teachings to our, at least first ourselves, our families, and eventually inshallah ta'ala, our co-workers, our neighbors. When they ask us questions, we should have intelligent answers. And if you don't know how to answer the question, we have our imams, we have our scholars. Go to them and give them, you know, give them a hard time, that's why they're here. Ask them these questions so you know how to answer them intelligently may allah azza wajalla make us an awake ummah and and really make us realize the responsibility we have to this book barakallahu li fil qur'an al hakim wa nafa'ni wa iyyakum bil ayati wa al hakim assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh
0: and from ummiyun even out of them there are unlettered people now minhum is lit taajab it's muqaddam uh, here Meaning, even out of the Israelites, these are people that are people of the book. But Allah says, even out of them, there are those who are unlettered. Ummi in Arabic means someone who is incapable of two things reading or writing. When they're incapable of reading and writing, they're called ummi. It comes from the word um, which means mother, meaning they are as illiterate as they were when they first came out of their mother. So, they're, 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 in that sense, they are not capable of reading and writing so he says among them are ummiyun la يعلمون الكتاب illa amani they don't know the book except for their own wishful thoughts umniya uh, is the singular the word amani means wishful thoughts you know in other words i don't know what this is or actually instead of knowing what this is you think you know what it is so allah is saying they don't know their book they don't know the book at all except they think they know what it is okay now this is the crime of Bani Israel against their book. This is a very serious ayah about them and their book. Allah says, among them are uneducated people, they don't know the book. What makes them undereducated and unlettered? They don't know the book except wishful thoughts. In other words, they don't really know what it says, they think they know what it says. First, let's think about this. And as far as our own selves, our own ummah is concerned. How many of us actually uh, uh, think we know what the Qur'an says? as opposed to actually knowing what it says. You know, a long time ago, uh, when I actually used to have the time to read an email forward, somebody sent me an email forward, and it had like these really nice uh, anecdotes, religious anecdote, a- anecdotes, Islamic anecdotes. I'm sure you get had you know, forwards like of a hadith or an ayah once in a while, right? An email. So I get this uh, uh, this email and it says, you know, if you, if you wake up for Fajr, then there will be light, on your face for the entire day, and if you pray dhuhr in the Masjid, then your there will be blessings in your sustenance. And if you pray Asr, this this will happen, and Maghrib, this this will happen, Asha, this this will happen, Jum'ah, this this will happen, and at the end of it all, at the bottom, it says wisdom from the Holy Quran. And I was like, that that ain't in the Quran. I don't know, you. Know? <laughs> so somebody decides that might be a good idea to say at the bottom. That has nothing to do with Allah's book, you know. So. You don't know what it says, but you think you know what it says. And this is a serious crime as far as Allah is concerned. Now, Allah says, وَإِنْهُمْ إِلَّا يَظُنُّونَ They do nothing but make assumptions. What this is teaching us is this ummah better not make assumptions about Allah's book. You and I better not make assumptions about what Allah makes, what, what makes Allah happy and what makes Allah angry. What He expects us to do, what He expects us not to do. What is crossing the line and what is okay? We better not make our own assumptions, Allah has already given the book. You know? A lot of times in casual Muslim conversations, Muslims can say things like, Oh, so where in the Qur'an does it say I can't do this? They'll say things like that. Where in the Qur'an does it say that? Well, first of all, you should be reading the Qur'an yourself. And this line of attitude, if in fact that isn't the Qur'an, you're in pretty serious trouble. (laughs) Watch your mouth. You know, you're dealing with Allah's book, is not some article or magazine that you're talking about. That's the first thing. The second thing here is, the interpretation of the Sahaba, when it comes to this ayah, is very shocking and scary as far as I'm concerned. To me, it's one of the scariest tafsir of an ayah I've ever read. When Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, was explaining this ayah, the central crime that the Israelites have committed with their book is with the word amani. In other words, they don't know their book. Allah says, they don't know the book except for their own or, or or wishful thoughts. Assumptions. He was explaining this word, assumptions. These wishful thoughts. What does it mean? He says, Amani Aitilawa. He says, Amani in this ayah means. Tilawa. I think even the Urdu speakers in the audience here know tilawat. What does tilawat mean? Recitation. Following. Tilawa literally in Arabic means to to follow along, meaning your eyes are following along the text, your fingers following along. This is tala, right? So just recite it. Then he says, you know, this amani means all they do is recite. They know it only by memorizing it and by reciting it without understanding it. So if anything, they do have a relationship with their book. This is not Quran. Allah is talking Ibn, Ibn Abbas is explaining Radiallahu anhu, the Jews with Tawrat. That's what he's explaining. But he's saying their relationship with their book is only three things. They recite it, they read it a little bit, and then they memorize some part of it. That's it. Bila Fahm without any understanding. Layadruna Mafiha. They have no clue what's inside it. They have no clue what's inside it, even though they recite it. Now, it's a scary thing that this is a description of Bani Israel. That all they do with their book is recite it and memorize some part of it, and they have no idea what it says. Because if you travel around the well-educated Muslim community in the United States, we don't even have to cross the Atlantic and go across the ocean and blame other Muslims in other parts of the world. Let's talk about some of the most educated, well-off Muslims in the entire planet, the Muslim community in America. And you go around and you'll find people that have amazing educational credentials, you know, from a a bachelor's or a master's degree in like accounting or physics or this or that or the other. And sometimes we even know languages that aren't even human like C++. Right, we we even know. (laughs) And you can read those and tell where there's a syntax missing and a comma and you can spot the problem, right? But yet when it comes to the language of Allah's book and understanding what Allah's book says... The vast majority of the Muslim community can be described as people who read the book, maybe even memorize some part of the book, but the vast majority of them have no idea what it says. You know, this is Allah describing Bani Israel. And look whose description fits. It's a scary thought. You know, al يعلمون الكتاب إلا wa وإنهم يظنون And they do nothing but make assumptions. They make assumptions that that's okay. They make assumptions, I don't have to know what this book says. They make assumptions, I already know, I got the gist of it. Akhira, I got it. Yeah, he's a messenger, yeah, and it's a good book, yeah, I got it. You know, I can't eat pork, got that too. So you're, you're okay, you don't need to know anymore, right? Subhanallah. Allah sent this book as a mercy, and as guidance for humanity, and the people who got it, have no time to read it. The people who actually believe that this is from Allah, are the people who don't give it any time. What a crazy situation we live in. So, لَا يَعْلَمُونَ الْكِتَابِ إِلَّا, uh, إلا أَمَنِيَّ وَإِنْهُمْ إِلَّا يَظُنُّونَ اللَّهُمَّ لَا تَجْعَلَ مِنْهُمْ فَوَيْلُ لِلَّذِينَ يَكْتُبُونَ الْكِتَابَ بِأَيْدِيهِمْ Then the worst form of destruction, what terrible curse and destruction for those who wrote the book with their own hands. So Allah is talking about a practice within the Israelites that they would write the book with their own hands. Now, with the Qur'an, Allah did not give us that power even if He wanted to. Even if the human beings try to come up with another Qur'an or change it or alter it, we can't do it. But then, the word kitab is used here. The word kitab doesn't just mean book, it also means law. It also means law. So we can't change Allah's book. What's the next best thing? Change its interpretation. Why don't you interpret it in a way that will fit your agenda a little better? Why won't you interpret it in a way that waters it down, so that it it comes across as easier? Or it makes you feel better about your disobedience. So their crime was they would write the book with their own hand. And our crime has become in our times to interpret it completely differently than it was meant to be interpreted. Then they say this is this is especially from Allah. This is definitely from Allah. So they try to sell it off as the authentic book of Allah. As many a times within the corrupt ranks of the Muslims will try to sell off a deviant, corrupted interpretation of Allah's book as this is the right Islam. <laughs> Allah is talking about the Israelites he says, so that they can sell it for a pathetic minuscule price. for very little price, they want to sell this book. This is why they reinterpret the book because they want to you know pass a fatwa, basically. That is gonna please someone who's going to give them a donation. So they can sell it from a small, for a small price. Then the worst destruction for what they wrote with their own hands. And the worst destruction for them because of what they, out of what they earned. In other words, Allah, there are two crimes here. One, they were changing Allah's book. That's a crime enough. But then Allah said, why were they changing it? So they could sell it. So they could sell that interpretation and, peop- and, and selling it means people will actually be willing to listen to them and come to them. And let me tell you how this manifests in the Muslim community. You can have, and I've seen this with my own eyes, in Masajid, where the Imam is saying certain practices are not permissible. The Imam is saying this. Alhamdulillah, this is not the case in our masjid. But you know, there are certain Masajid where you know the, the Imam has been hired, he's a qualified scholar, he has his opinions on things. And the community is not exactly... I I, I won't use the word liberal, I'll just say they like partying a little more than normal. Okay, But they have a very scholarly imam. And the imam says, this and this practice is not good, we're not gonna do this. Or this this kind of gathering, we're not gonna have it in the masjid or whatever. He'll pass his ruling on it. And they'll come to him and say, no really, uh, we need you to say in this khutbah that this is okay. We need you to legitimize this practice because uh, some board members are getting upset. You know, and the fundraiser is coming, and if they get upset, we're not going to raise a lot of funds. So you need, to be, you, know, you need to keep your mouth shut about it. If at least you can't condone it, don't say anything about it. What is this? Selling the deen. This is what this is. That's literally what this is. You know, and I know a lot of imams who've quit their jobs because they refuse to sell their religion for, you know, for pressure from people. People want to hear what they want to hear. The imam wants to tell them what Allah has to say. Right? They have to, you have to be genuine to the deen. But uh, this doesn't happen every time. Even scholars and imams are human beings. So it may even happen that they succumb to that pressure and say, look, I got a, I got a family to feed also. I have a job as well. So I might just stay quiet. I'll just play along, you know? This happens too. So what are they doing these fatawa for? They're selling it for a small price. People are putting pressure on them to give them, to issue them rulings that will legitimize certain practices that they're doing. لِيَشْتَرُوا بِهِ ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا فَوَيْلٌ لَهُمْ مِمّا كَتَبَتْ أَيْدِيهِمْ وَوَيْلٌ لَهُمْ مِمّا يَكْسِبُونَ that the second, so the first was them writing it with their own hands. The second, what they earned because of selling it. Both of those crimes they get destruction for, separate destruction for. And now Allah gives us the, the
1: worst kind of amani there is. You know, Allah mentioned amani, wishful thoughts. You know why these wishful thoughts are dangerous? You start constructing a religious worldview of your own that contradicts the actual revelation. And in your own worldview, you or myself included, we are deluded into thinking we are definitely headed to to paradise. I'm not that bad. I'm actually doing pretty good. And as bad as I am, even if I did end up in hellfire, it's gonna be a weekend or something. It's not gonna be that bad. You know, it's, it's... because you know after all i am from this blessed ummah after all i did you know fast every day in ramadan and all of these good things i did so even though yes i have a liquor store on the side that's but that's not that bad at least i use that money to donate to the masjid i hope you didn't <laughs> right but you know and you have people like this you have people that openly disobey allah And then they do something that is apparently religiously good, and they think what they do is good, will compensate for all the bad they do. So the guy's got a liquor store, but behind the cash register, he's got ayatul kursi hanging there. Right? So it's all good. After that, he's okay. (laughs) You know? Or you have people that are in just blatantly haram businesses, but they go to hajj every year. You know? Why? Because you know, I mean, that's all this debit, they gotta credit it with something. Or you'll have, you know, twisted moralities. You know, you have people that are just outright criminals that give donations to like, you know, Hiv's programs. And they'll give donations to like madaris, Islamic madaris. Why? Because they have a guilty conscience, they're doing something filthy themselves. So they're saying, maybe I can pay my way into paradise. Right? Maybe I can just give donations, that'll be good enough. I can keep up my practices. This, this mentality can only exist if you don't read the book. If you don't understand the book, then you can construct your own ticket to paradise, if you will, right? So these people had only assumptions. So they came up with their own ticket to paradise. And this is what the ayah will conclude with. They said, "Wa illa إِلَّ They said, the fire won't touch us except just a few days. Okay, it'll be a long weekend, an extra day, you know, throw one more day and that's it. After that, it's all good. How, how bad can it be? And actually, I got this as a question one time. I was at a youth conference in, in Florida, and I got a question, how, how bad can... Uh, How how about can hellfire be? I mean, I'm Muslim. Yeah, I do a lot. This teenage girl asked a question, she wrote it down anonymously. I do a lot of haram stuff. But, uh, and I I guess I will go to hell, but I'm not gonna go forever, right? That's what the question said. (laughs) Not gonna go forever, right? So this idea is in your head that, yeah, okay, even if I do go, it's not forever. I mean, if I can survive Texas in the summer, I should be okay, you know. The, the thing of it is though, the, the thing, the point you're missing, you and I are missing, probably I'll start with this one tomorrow. The ayah in Suratul anbiya Allah describes a split second, a split second not spent inside hellfire, right outside hellfire. Right outside hellfire. The person hasn't even entered hellfire yet, they're outside it. And how much time have they spent so far? A split second. Has the fire touched them yet? No. The only thing that touched them is nafha. Nafha means a cold breeze. Not even a warm breeze. That's lafha. A cold breeze. You know how when you close a door, a little bit of air comes in? That's called nafha in Arabic if it's cold. So Allah is saying if a little bit of air escapes from hell, and that air isn't even warm, it's not even hot, it's actually cool compared to what's inside. And even if that touched them, it barely touched them. They will swear, they will scream, oh, what horrible destruction, we must be in the worst part in hell. We have been wrongdoers all along, no doubt about it. Like they cry, they plead insanity basically. They get to that point by being extensively tortured with a little little breeze outside the hellfire. And then you have the audacity to ask, it's just gonna be a few days, right? It's, be, it's all good. So they said, لَن تَمَسَّنَا النَّارُ إِلَّا أَيَّامًا مَعْدُودًا then Allah tells them, قُلْ أَتَّخَثْتُمْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ عهداً. So uh, tell me, tell the messengers commanded to ask them, did you take a promise with Allah? You have a special contract you have taken with Allah that you signed that fire won't touch you except for a few days? فَلَنْ يُخْلِفَ اللَّهُ عدا. And as a result, he will never go back, back on his promise. Allah has promised you that he's not gonna take you into fire, and even if he does, it's not gonna be except for a few days? This, you have some agreement with you? You know? أَمْ تَقُولُونَ عَلَى اللَّهِ مَا لتعلمون. Or is it the case that you're saying things about Allah that you have no knowledge of? Is that the case? We have to ask ourselves this question. Is our view of our deen, is our view of salvation, what it means to be successful before Allah on judgment day, based on what Allah revealed? Or is it based on my own twisted you know, imaginary worldview an imaginary aqidah, in which I'm successful no matter what I do, and I'm doing okay? May Allah Azza wa Jalla clarify the teachings of this dean for all of us, and May Allah Azza wa Jalla not make us of those who are deluded about salvation, and at the same time are able to walk that fine line between fear and hope. BarakAllahu lilakum fil Qur'an al-Hakim, wa naf'ni wa iya'kum bil-ayati wa dzikr al-Hakim. Alhamdulillahi alamin, wa sallatu ala ashrafil ashraf al-aniyya wa al-mursaleen, wa 'ala alehi wa sabbihi, uman istanbi sunnatihi ilaihumiddin, thumma amma bad fa'audhu billahi min al-shaytan ar-rajiim. بلا من كسب سَيِّئَةً واحاطت به خطيئته فاولئك اصحاب النار هم فيها خالدون والذين امنوا وعملوا الصالحات اولئك اصحاب الْجَنَّةِ هم فيها خالدون رب شْرَحْ لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي الحمد لله والسلام على رسول الله وعلى اله وصحبه ومن الله عز وجل in the ayah before that we discussed talked about the misconception that the fire will not touch them except for a few days, a limited number of days. And then he questioned this mentality and he says, Do you have an agreement with Allah that He's not going to go back on? Or are you saying things about Allah that you yourselves have no knowledge of? And that discussion is now continuing in the next ayah. Rather, whoever earned a single sin, whoever earned a sin, and his single mistake, his, his enormous mistake engulfed him, encircled him. This is a very uh, a deep and thought-provoking concept that has been outlined in this ayah. I'll roughly translate first. Rather the one who earned a single sin and his mistake encircled him, فَأُولَٰئِكَ فِيهَا خالدون, Then those are the people of fire in which they will remain. I'll, we'll probably only discuss this one ayah today because it's very heavy and, and, and some of its implications are very very powerful. You see, in the previous ayah, they said, okay, yeah, we've done some bad things, but even if you go to hellfire, it's gonna be for a little while. In this ayah, Allah says, even if someone, man kasaba, whoever earned, so he's not just singling out Bani Israel, he's giving a universal principle. Anybody who fulfills this formula. Whoever earns a single sin, Sayyi'ah is a serious sin. As opposed to ذَمْب, which could be big or small, Sayyah is only used for bigger uh, uh, mistakes. So, Whoever earns a single sin, and then it encircled him. This means a couple of things. One of the implications of this is a person who's addicted to sinning, and they do a lot of good things, but there's this one problem they have, they can't get away from it. So maybe they're alcoholic. So they say, man, I'm gonna pray regularly, I'll even give zakah, I'll fast regularly in Ramadan, I'll go to hajj, I'll do everything good. But this alcohol, I just can't give it up. I just can't give it up. And actually, there were even among some uh, some of the later Sahaba, there were those who were addicted to alcohol in the Tabi'in generation, and you know, in the first early generation too. And they had to be weaned off of it. You know, even in the time of Umar radiallahu anhu, there were people like that. On the other hand, you have so so. There's this one mentality: the person does not want to let go of their sin. And you know what they say? They start thinking to themselves: it is impossible for me to give up this mistake, this sin of mine. Whether it, you know, like I mentioned, it could be alcoholism, but it could be other things too. It could be riba. it could be consuming haram income, you know, for your family, things like that. It could be shamelessness, whatever it may be. But they're addicted to it. And then they start thinking in their head, well, I do this one bad thing all the time, but at least I do a lot of good things. So it should balance out, it should cancel out in the end, I should be okay. Allah says, no, this one sin has actually encircled you. وَأَحَاطَتْ بِهِ خَطِيئَتُهُ His huge mistake has encircled him. That he doesn't realize the price of this mistake. Because at the end of that mistake, Allah says, فَأُولَيْكَ النَّارِ Those are the people of fire. In other words, the consequence of not giving up that one sin and thinking that you're still okay, can even, that, even that can lead you into the fire. That's one implication of this ayah. The second thing that's very powerful is that when you are addicted to a sin, it doesn't just remain to that one sin. You start doing other things and justifying other behaviors and other evils start entering into your life because of that one mistake. So, when you, because you, you to, in order to justify that one evil deed, you actually start engaging in a series of other evil deeds and you get trapped in this circle, in this entangled web. So, that one mistake has encircled this person's life. It's that one thing they couldn't let go of. For instance, in the case of Bani Israel and also in the case of some of the leaders of Quraysh, their one mistake was arrogance. They may have a lot of good qualities. Actually, if you if you study the life of Abu Jahal before Islam, he's a philanthropist. He's actually known, known to be like a man of his word. People respect him. You know, people can actually consider him pretty wise. Abu al-Hakam was his previous name. So he's got good qualities. It's not like he has bad qualities. And such good qualities that even in the dua of the messenger wasallam, he made dua for either Umar ibn al-Khattab or... Amr bin Hashim. so he's got these qualities that even the messenger can recognize sallallahu alaihi wasallam. but he's got this one problem he can't see his tribe take a secondary position and the messenger being accepted and because he's from Banu Hashim then take a superior position this one sin encircles him and all the good that he does is no longer any good similar in the case of Abu Talib who's got a lot of great qualities but there's one this pride It can't I can't leave the religion of my ancestors. I can't do it. I feel like a traitor if I did that. What are the people going to say? Right? So it's either pride or fear of what people might say. And he can't even accept Islam at his deathbed. And nobody better than the Messenger of Allah to invite you to La ilaha illallah. Right? Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And yet, even that's not enough for him. So you have this one sin that can encircle a person entirely. Now, the other lesson inside this ayah is Man kasaba atan, Whoever, any single person, but in the end, Allah says, فَأُولَٰئِكَ أَصْحَابُ النَّارِ Those are the people of fire. In other words, Allah bunches these people together, they, can, they don't have to be from the same nation. This quality of being addicted to a sin and letting it encircle your life can be a member of Bani Israel, this can be a member of you know, a Nasara, this could be one of the Mushrikun. this could even be a Munafiq within the Ummah. It could be that too. Whoever fulfills this formula, that whoever falls under this trap, they're all bunched together now. فَأُولَٰئِكَ أَصْحَابُ النار هم فيها خالدون. And then the contrast. And the contrast is incredible. It's something so simple, it's recited all the time. But yet the way it's placed in this ayah, in this, play, in this surah, وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصالحات. It's contrast now. As opposed to this, those who believed and did righteous deeds. Now this is a common translation of amil al-salihat. In Surah Al-Asr I think I talked about al-salihat in more detail in the darsan Surah Al-Asr, but al-salihat is a kind of plural in Arabic that illustrates minimal. It's a kind of jam'u pillah. In other words, there're not a lot of good deeds Allah is asking you to do. He's asking you to do very few things. Those who believed and did the few things they were instructed to do, the few good deeds that were asked of them. What is implied here is Allah is not asking us for a lot. What Allah has asked us is very little. He didn't put any difficulty in the religion for you at all. You know, Allah intends to make your burden lighter for you. He doesn't intend to make your life difficult, He intends to make your life easier. So He says, in this ayah, when amanu wa amilus salihat, fa ulaiikal shabul fiha then those are the people of Paradise in which they will remain. Very simple formula. Just do these two things. It's so easy to pronounce, but it's so heavy to live by these two things: iman and righteous deeds. And here we also learn once again the natural, the logical connection between two things, or rather three things. There are three steps. The first step is iman. If someone really has iman, necessarily, what will that lead to in their life? good deeds now that they have iman and good deeds what will that lead to in their next life ashabul jannahum fiha there's a logical pro- progression now you have some people who claim they have iman but there are no deeds when there's no step 2 you don't have to work, you you can't get to step 3 you understand so there's a three step thing here there's first there's faith then there's good deeds then there's the success in the afterlife may allah grant all of us that success but you skip a step and you've got nothing and similarly you have people that do a lot of good deeds but they have no iman you can have an atheist or a mushrik who's giving millions of dollars to orphans or helping out flood victims or whatever else but they don't believe iman is missing, a'mal saliha are there that's still not good enough to get to the paradise you need two conditions to get to that third this is a very basic simple way you know theologians can discuss these things in volumes of books and Allah puts them in just one statement very powerful statement, you know. آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ
0: أُولَٰئِكَ أَصْحَابُ الْجَنَّةِ هُمْ فِيهَا خَالِدُونَ Now there's a summarization once again. This is actually discuss- concluding. That ayah just concluded one big chunk of the discourse with Bani Israel, with the Israelites. Now the second part of that discussion is beginning. And so Allah starts again with the covenant. You remember even the beginning of this discussion, there was, bi'ahdi Ufi Fulfill the promise that I have made with you. You know, fulfill my promise and I'll fulfill my promise to you. You know, you do your part, I'll do mine. Now once again, going back to that covenant, that contract, that agreement again, the Khadna Israel, When we took the covenant, that serious agreement with the sons of Israel, and what were some of its conditions? لَا تَعْبُدُونَ إِلَّا الله now, amazing! The previous ayah said, "What two things must you do to get to Jannah? Iman and good deeds." Now, look at this: "La illallah." You will not worship anyone other than Allah. You will not be enslaved to anyone other than Allah. Isn't that a matter of iman now? That's a matter of iman. Now, what, what else is going to be mentioned? Listen: and to be the best possible you can be to serve excellence to your parents. Good deeds, right? Wadil Qurba And to close relatives. And to close relatives, you'll be your best. وَالْيَتَامَ And the orphans and the poor. Here we should look in the mirror a little bit. Sometimes we have a good relationship with our boss. We have good relationships with people we hang out with. You know, good relationship with fellow students in college. Terrible relationship with your father. Terrible relationship with your mother. Can't talk to her for more than 20 minutes, you lose your cool. Right? You and your dad can't even ride in the same car together for more than an hour because somebody's going to explode. Right? So Allah took this covenant from them, you're going to worship none but me and you'll be the best to your parents. This is easy to say once again, and you've heard this all the time. But practically speaking, if you look at the reality of even the Muslim family today, we don't have, we have broken relationships with our parents. Our parents are not happy with us, we're not happy with our parents. This is a very serious problem. Allah mentioned it right after ibadah to him on multiple occasions in the Qur'an. Bil إِحْسَانٍ And by the way, it's not just our parents we have bad relationships with nowadays, it's the rest of our family too. You'll be totally okay getting along with your non-Muslim co-worker, who might even be joining the Qur'an burning ceremony later on, and you don't, that's okay. How's it going Frank? Everything's good? Yeah. You know, let's go hang out sometime. Whatever, you're okay with them. But your own cousin, your own nephew, your own close relative, I can't stand that guy. Remember what he said last Eid? We're not going over to their house this year. You know? And you have these feuds within the family that you don't want to, you have these grudges, you don't want to let go of. You know, in-laws hating each other. Cousins hating each other. Brothers, not, they could be living down on the same block. They don't even say salam when they come out of the house. No, not that. No, not this guy, no. No way send his calls to voicemail or whatever. Right? You're gonna be the best. Allah says, if you're gonna be the best, it'll be first to your parents, then to close relatives. And look at the reality once again of the Muslim ummah today. We are the worst to our close relatives. We're the worst to them. We speak angrily with them, we're impatient with them. And there's a conflict within many Muslim families. There's a religious members of the extended family, and there's a kind of liberal element in the extended family, and there's a civil war going on inside, right? At every Eid gathering, the religious ones are the objects of ridicule, and they're being made fun of, oh, Mawlana is here, Sheikh is here, Eid Mubarak, you know. So, so you're being made fun of because you're the extremist in the family or whatever. Or if you're religious and your cousins aren't, then you make, you know, you constantly criticize them for how evil they are and how they're headed for hellfire and things you're totally judgmental of them. This is the exact opposite of what Allah expects from the previous nation and these principles are still alive for us today. Let me quickly wrap up the ayah and inshallah we'll discuss it more after. So, وَبِالْوَالِدَنِ إِحْسَانًا وَذِي <coughs> And the orphans, how many people know how many orphans there are in our community over here? If we haven't even made the effort to identify them, how are we going to be the best to them? وَالْمَسَاكِينَ And those who are in need, those who cannot help themselves, how many people in our community have been laid off, are laid on their house payments or their rent? or they don't even have money to pay the electricity bill, and they're sitting in our Salah next to us, and we have no idea, this is something Allah asked us to do, to be the best of those who are in need. And it starts, it's a ripple effect, your closest people to you, your parents, then your relatives, then the orphans and the needy implying in your community. First take care of your community, وَالْمَسَاكِينَ. And then He says, وَقُولُوا Husnan And to speak, and speak, you will speak to people in the be- most beautiful fashion. You will speak to people beautifully, wonderfully. You know, the Muslims nowadays, the more religious you are, the more uh depressed you look. Depressed or aggressive. Like you just it's part of being good a good religious Muslim must have a frown on their face or something. That just means you're really you're really on the sunnah or something, you know. So the idea of smiling is almost like haram, you know. And if somebody walks into the masjid with a smile on their face, everybody's like, What's this guy's problem? <laughs> oh what deviant guy, you <laughs> know. Subhanallah, smile—it's a sunnah. <laughs> and when you speak to people, you can be nice to them. There's a way to say Wa alaykumussalam. Somebody says Salam alaykum, you say Wa alaykumussalam. That's not Wa kullulil nasi husna. Wa alaykumussalam, wa rahmatullah. How are you, brother? This is, you know, this is this is what increases brotherhood. Wa kullulil nasi husnan, wa alimussala wa atu alzaka. And you'll establish the salah and and establish the prayer and give zakah. <laughs> We're up to ayah number eighty-four in our dars. And the previous ayah Allah Azza wa Jal had mentioned overall some of the most essential uh, basic tenets of the covenant taken with Bani Israel, La Wa you're not gonna worship anyone other than Allah. You're gonna be the best you can possibly be to your parents. And to close relatives, and when you, you'll speak, and to and those who are not able to help themselves, you're going to speak to people in the most beautiful fashion. الصلاة الصلاة then he established upon them the, the obligation of uh, establishing the prayer and giving the zakah. Then he mentioned, then you turned away, except for very few of you. Now, if you notice these obligations that were just mentioned, They have to do with either you and Allah or you and your immediate community. Very immediate community. First your family, then your close relatives, then the poor in your community. So it's taking care of the, you can say, the micro-responsibilities. And you know what happens if you don't take care of your micro-responsibilities? You start falling short on bigger responsibilities. You start, there's cracks start appearing in the bigger picture. So when you talk about an ummah being corrupted, and people fighting and killing even muslims fighting and killing each other those are big problems but they start from small
1: things so now Allah mentions these fundamentals but now look at what they led to in the next ayah. Allah Azza says wa خَذْنَا مِثَاقَكُمْ like we took the and when we took the covenant from you latasfikuna dima'akum you are not going to shed your blood. You're not going to spill your own blood. Now what does that mean? Latasfikuna dima'akum you're not going to kill each other. A Muslim will not be killing another Muslim and I'm using the word Muslim because these people were the Muslims of that time. So they're being told you're not going to kill each other. Now the interesting thing is you know let us fikuna among each other you will not shed blood that's something else but allah said akum your blood you know what that implies when you shed the blood of another believer it is the same as your own blood that is your blood you know so he says dima'akum it's a very powerful statement it's like killing yourself when you're killing another believer And you will not expel your own selves from your homes. Literally, that's what Allah says. You will not expel your own selves from your homes. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to kick yourself out of the house. What does that mean? You're going to. You're not going to force other believers out of their properties. Expel them. Deport them you know kick them out and i use the word deport on purpose because there are several situations in the muslim world today where muslims are deporting other muslims to other countries for nationalistic reasons because of borders that were defined not by us but by disbelievers we are now willing to take others who say la ilaha illallah and say you don't belong in this country you go over there right we're we're literally fulfilling the crimes of bani israel and Allah Azza wa Jalla tells them, لا أنفسكم من دياركم. Not, you will not kill each other, and you will not be expelling each other from your homes. And then He says, ثم أقررتم. Then you agreed, all of you. Antum تُمْتَشَهَدُونَ. While you were all witness. you all bore witness and actually wholeheartedly agreed to these this covenant.